You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. For, for heritage to uh, have value, for heritage to matter, you have to have a community there that celebrates it and connects to it. At the end of the day, these things, although they're from the past, they're kind of living and they're carried through to the present and then on to the future, hopefully, if we do our jobs right. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in family and local history from New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. So um, what we've got next um, is we've got a a treat. We've got um, Judith Bassett, who is going to be talking to us about family history. Um, And uh, that'll be of some interest to the family historians in the room and also to the historians who might be interested in doing their family history. Um, I see a family tree and a family history as quite different things. What I am going to talk about is how to put a bit of flesh on the bones of a family tree. And you should start with the idea that New Zealand is an immigrant society, that all of our families have come from somewhere else. And that is especially so in Auckland. Only a minority of Aucklanders have both parents born in Auckland. And their grandparents come usually from quite different places and further back than that, um, from overseas almost certainly. 19th century history is still within reach, although it's much further back than it used to be. I used to teach courses on the Russian Revolution at the university um, in the 20th century. And then, of course, it was in the same century as we are. Now we're in the 21st century, and it's back at the beginning of the 20th. And most of um, uh, Imperial Russia was much further back than that. It's, um, the 19th century is, is just barely reachable. Māori came to New Zealand sometime between 1275 and 1375. The canoe histories and the tribal connections are very important to capture if you're going to do Māori family history, and you should get onto that as soon as you can. Your first job is to sort out who came and when. Where did they come from? Either from overseas or from somewhere else in New Zealand, and then add some flesh to the bones. Photos are extremely important, and so are family stories. Interview aged relatives soon. They won't last forever. Don't just leave it to Christmas. Get onto it next weekend, and write down what they say. Ask about personality. Ask about skills, about family background. Don't forget to ask about women's household skills. They make a huge difference to our quality of living. By asking any person over 60, and let alone any person over 80, about their grandparents and the stories they remember being told in their childhood, you can get back more than a century. 
some remarkable oral history has been done of this kind. Michelle has kindly picked up a, um, a photo. Uh, it comes quite a lot later, but it's a photo I'll talk about soon. Um, a marvellous photo that just fell into my hands um, of uh, someone who was important in the history of Southland. She's not a relative of mine, but golly, I wish she was. I'll tell you about her later. But if you ask a person of 80 over about their grandparents and the stories their grandparents told them when they were children, as I said, you can get back a long way. You might get only scraps and shreds of memory, but those kinds of bits are extremely valuable. I suggest if you're doing family history, you concentrate on your direct line first your parents, your four grandparents, your eight great-grandparents. And then maybe you can branch out. If you come across an interesting side branch or individual, pursue them. Only the other day I discovered that I have a, quite an interesting and utterly equivocal connection in one of the side branches who was, I think, a transsexual fan dancer. And I want to know quite a lot more about the life of Tiki Turner, the fan dancer who bought his wigs and his gowns in Paris. But um, I'll tell you more about him some other time. Um, but that's the sort of detail you're after if you can possibly find it. Death certificates. I love death certificates, especially old ones. They are great for flesh fleshing out a story. Our great-grandmothers nearly all died of exhaustion and senile decay. They were the fashionable things in the 19th century. Great-grandfathers didn't die of senile decay. They died of the DTs or minus tysis or pneumonia or something like that. Sometimes a man would die of exhaustion as well, and often before he was 50. And they died of dreadful accidents. Look in the Thames Cemetery. The Thames Cemetery is full of little boys drowned in the Firth of Thames aged between 10 and 12 just the time when a boy was old enough to take out the boat and go and get some fish for dinner, and that is a very treacherous piece of water. Young adolescents in frontier towns helping out were killed when a dray backed over them in the street, and children were burnt to death when a candle caught their nightclothes. All these things happen quite often. I've got incidents of all of those in my family in quite a short piece of time. Infants died at about 18 months or two years old. Um, usually they died of something that was put on the death certificate as teething. Teething, you say? But if the doctor was a bit more upmarket, they would die of dentition. And of course, it was nothing to do with their teeth. It was the transition from breast milk to bad water that did it. But however bizarre the story, it will have a grain of truth somewhere. And some poor, helpless, feckless infants simply died of failure to thrive. It was entirely their own fault, you understand. But however bizarre the story, it will have something in it. 
there was the account we were once given when we were writing another biography. Oh, Albert fell off a tram and had a heart attack. We used to run these death certificates past a wonderful doctor friend of ours. And the doctor said, more probably Albert had the heart attack and then fell off the tram. So that they were both right. The medical story was right, but it had got a bit shonky with time. Women are far harder to find and to describe than men. Papers passed is a gold mine for many men, but not so much for women. You might, though, get what they wore to events, to weddings and to fundraisers and to things before World War II, usually, they would write quite fancy accounts of what um, women were wearing, and you could judge quite a lot about them from that. But the men are much more likely to appear. One of my great-grandfathers spent far longer than I would have liked in the magistrate's court for smallish but persistent offending, quite a lot of drunkenness and threatening to break his wife's jaw. Presumably she was telling him a few home truths. I knew quite a lot about that grandparent by the time I'd finished. But almost all of it came from papers past. The family never talked about him at all, which was not surprising. So it would have been useless to rely on them. Women come alive sometimes in letters and photographs. They are often the family letter writers too, and they are far more likely to express affection. I think expressions of affection were often seen, particularly in working class families, as weakness or softness. The family would get out of hand. It was mother that had to do that. And even short letters can confirm or reduce a hunch you have that you have no other evidence of. Mind you, the women are sometimes likely to have been illiterate. Another of my great-grandmothers was illiterate all her life. She saw no purpose at all in reading or writing and she never wrote even her name. When Michael was writing about Sir Joseph Ward, Ward, I think, was by far the most pleasurable biography we wrote. Ward was such a character. He often used to finish his political meetings by serenading his constituents in his beautiful Irish tenor. And um, when we wrote about after that, um, ever had any, uh, any of that kind of charm. But we both formed the impression that he was his mother's favourite and she had a profound influence on his optimistic and charming personality. We didn't have any evidence of that, however. And then a short letter from Hannah, Hannah Ward Barron, his mother, to Joseph at a time of great stress suddenly turned up. Family produced it. It was only a couple of hundred words. It didn't look very important, but they said we might like to have it. And I fell on it like a vulture. Hannah wasn't a very ill-educated woman. Punctuation was a mystery to her. Spelling was even more mysterious. She didn't need them. She didn't have much time to live when she wrote this letter. And she just wanted to get her message across. And here is what she wrote to her beloved son, who was once Seddon's almost magical colonial treasurer, 
and now in 1898 he was struggling to organize a discharge from the bankruptcy court. First, she gave him some news about the weather in Bluff. It was snowing. And then praise of his wife and sons to let him know that the family was okay. And then in a few lines, her real message to Joseph. I watched the papers and I think it will be a long session. I will beg of you to try and not lose your temper. There is no doubt it is very trying, but do try and keep cool. I will ask of you to comply with one little prayer every morning or any time you are going to the House of Parliament to say as you were going along, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, help me. You will not fail, as I can tell you they have stood by you and help you in everything for your benefit. With fond love, God bless you from your mother. It makes me feel quite stuffed up even when I read it now. Within a few weeks, Hannah was dead. But what she had done was pass on her urgent reassurance of comfort and advice and made sure he was referred to in permanent to a, referred to a permanent source of help it's a very 1898 letter i can't imagine any mother writing it now but it's also a very loving letter and we know what she thought about him and how supportive she could be the the other thing is that michael forgot to say about teresa his wife teresa's hats he mentioned and they were fantastic any picture you see of the ward of it, the wards in any gathering you will know who they are by teresa's fantastic hats and um when they were in England, I remember reading the, bio, the diary of some British politician they, um, they met at, at the Cow's Regatta, it was. And he was asking her what she thought about this women's suffrage thing that New Zealand had gone in for. And, and you know, how much of a political and social disaster it was and, and whether we were going to survive it. And uh, he came away from lunch enormously impressed by Lady Ward. Her beauty and charm, I think, as much as her brain, but she was certainly a clever woman. And he came away from that lunch feeling quite a lot encouraged about women's suffrage and how it might not be the end of the empire after all. <laughs> and so that's my Theresa Ward story now. The next thing, after trying to find every scrap of personality you can, is to fit your people into context. They've got to be in their place. Hannah's letter is 1898. It's certainly not 1988, for instance. What is going on at that time? And it's okay to fit your people into context quite roughly at first. Acquire a working knowledge of the place they left at the time they left. Scotland, London, the Midlands, Ireland, Italy, China. Why did your people leave? What were the push factors? Where did they go? What were the pull factors? Who went with them? Now men might leave with a regiment of troops or a scramble of gold miners. Women seldom came alone. 
they maybe came with a group sent by an immigration society. There were charities who would send young women and young, particularly young servants from the overcrowded old world to the new world where the chances of marriage were much better. Some governesses sent by such a society into the Australian bush were absolutely devastated at what they had found when they got there. Lucy Frost, the um, Australian historian, has written a wonderful book about the governesses in the Australian bush. It's called No Place for a Nervous Lady. The colonies were indeed no places for nervous ladies. Um, women also came with family, with parents or brothers, occasionally with sons. Before the 1860s though, very few immigrants came straight to New Zealand. Lack of opportunity or depression or even real penury drove them out in many cases. Some came for more idealistic reasons. They were missionary wives come to spread the gospel. They came from the intellectual challenge of seeking to build an ideal society. Mary Ann Martin, the wife of our first Chief Justice, is very much in that category. Some young adults left the old world because they felt pushed out by a parent's second marriage and a second family. And sometimes they were liberated by that. Michael and I were writing something else and we got something completely wrong. We thought that the daughters had left to join their brothers in Melbourne because they were annoyed by their father's second marriage to a young aunt. But then we got, I think, a different impression by realizing that if the aunt hadn't stepped in to look after the old man, the daughters would have had to do it for the rest of their lives. And instead, they got out to Melbourne and they married, a couple of them happily, a couple of them less happily. But they did have lives of their own, which they would never have had had they stayed looking after the old man in Hamburg. So a second marriage could be liberating as well as um, alienating, I think. Um, now, uh, so remarriages are often quite an important push factor one way or another. And so, of course, our first marriages that you'd got sick of if you were a man, many men abandoned families they'd grown tired of, and bigamy was a classic frontier crime. Bigamy and fraud were the classic crimes of the immigrant frontier. They were so in the American West and they were so down here. I remember an American historian, a legal historian saying to me, a woman who marries a man with a wife still living doesn't know him real well. Well, she and her family would have known him real well if they'd all been still in New England. But by the time you're halfway to California, nobody knows anybody real well. And that was more so, I think, of Australia and New Zealand. Keep in mind always the Duke of Wellington's cynical remark that pregnant girls and petty crime were his best recruiting sergeants and very much the same applied to immigrants. 
and the petty crime thing I think applied to my grandfather who came great-grandfather who came out as a soldier some immigrants hoped to acquire land of their own but that was not everyone's motivation thousands were more enticed by gold to Australia and they came on to Otago or Thames from there Australia and New Zealand remember were the last bus stops the last to be settled but they were certainly not necessarily the nicest especially for women Australia had convicts and seriously scary bush New Zealand had dense forest and cannibals those New Zealand company water watercolor artists we kept busy painting idyllic images of blue sky and calm water. We like to buy them now um, to do up an old villa if we're lucky enough to have one in Freeman's Bay or somewhere like that. They show Wellington with mild grassy pale green hills, a glassy harbour and ships at anchor to show that you were not cut off from the old world but they were nothing more than advertisements whalers sealers and traders came first they were all men some set up shore stations there was considerable intermarriage with Maori missionaries followed later in the 1830s usually with wives and children in support and then in the 19 in the 1840s settlers were recruited to the so-called planned settlements and these started as speculative ventures by the New Zealand company and others but some had already been into in such settlements in Australia settlements in Western Australia um, there was a West Australia company and that sort of thing the company um, sold uh, land that they'd usually extracted by um, ill-gotten Ill gains from Maori. They then sold the land to gentlemen who intended to come to set up estates, but no sensible gentleman, let alone a gentleman's wife, would ever have thought of coming if they could not be sure of, of servants and labourers to make life comfortable. So they recruited um, laborers and um, young married couples usually at the docks in Southampton and sent them out along with these um, uh, slices like a sliced layer cake of um, of society with the gentlemen at the top the house servants the farm laborers and so on where did your ancestors if you have family that began in one of these planned settlements where did they fit even the assisted laborers at the bottom of the at the bottom um, had to have a certificate of character signed by a real live Anglican Bishop not Bishop uh, um, vicar only an Anglican would do they had to be of the Church of England and out they came um, and they had to be married I think a lot of them I um, wouldn't be at all surprised if the two of my family that came out to Nelson um, met in Southampton at the dock were married on the spot got the vicar's certificate for a shilling and got on the boat 
I think that was much more likely than the so-called planning that was meant to have occurred. Christchurch, you know, even came complete with a real live bishop, and boy, did they give themselves airs. Christchurch always considered itself the cream of all the New Zealand company settlements. Remember all the tensions within those settlements in the 1840s, and the tensions between them too. They all despised Auckland. Um, Auckland was not planned. Auckland was just full of drifters and chances who came across from Australia, and odious commercial types, and soldiers, because it was the seat of government, and they didn't like politicians very much either. So um, Auckland was well beyond the pale. And then, in the 1860s, gold rushes and wars swamped that social engineering of the first settlements. Gentlemen were all very well, but um, if gold miners looking for gold just went right over their heads. In the second half of the 19th century, New Zealand was also awash with soldiers after the New Zealand wars. They took their discharges and often stayed, thousands of them stayed in New Zealand, and they tended to drift north to the Thames, maybe to try their luck on the gold field, and then they ended up in Auckland. The inner city of Auckland had pubs on every corner. Hardly any of them survive, but there are still um, a fair number. Soldiers, remember, were the real bottom of the heap. They were the underclass of the 19th century. Most respectable hotels refused refuse to serve them or even to let them in the door. They gathered in large numbers in the cheap pubs and drinking houses and rooming houses around Nelson Street and Hobson Street and maybe Arch Hill. Much of the inner city was insalubrious, to say the least. And what made it worse was that in these rooming houses where they stayed, there were very few washing facilities. They used the public bathhouse, which was down roughly at the bottom of Hobson Street. And that was where they tipped the night soil um, when the tide came in so the tide could take it out into the harbour. So you had to time your bath as well as you had to time everything else. <laughs> if you hadn't got one already, you need a very useful outline of 19th and 20th century New Zealand history. I still think Keith Sinclair's is much the best, and it's much the best read, and you can usually pick them up in second-hand bookshops or on Trade Me. Michael King's history is a fine history too, but a general history is only the start. The detail you're after comes when you sieve the general information. The 30s are the whalers and sealers and missionaries. The 40s are the planned settlements. The 60s are the wars and the gold rushes. The 70s are Julius Vogel and public works, all that sort of thing. And then the 90s are um, um, the um, conversion to modern New Zealand. But that's only a start. The detail you want comes when you sieve that information through a much finer mesh. You want to provincial and local histories. You want papers past. You want centennial booklets. 
histories of local churches or schools. Librarians are amazingly careful and patient. Many have a huge knowledge of their local history. I remember going into Devonport, the Devonport Library, to look for my Devonport relatives. And it was an absolute treasure trove, including my um, rather uh, other disreputable great-grandfather who was a, a serial womanizer. And he probably started it at primary school where he certainly wasn't paying any attention to his lessons. He failed every subject when he sat his proficiency. I enjoyed yesterday's stories from Taranaki. Thank you very much for those. And they brought to mind a few of my own. And this is where the picture comes in. We stayed once with friends in Drummond in Southland, and I picked up the local centennial history just to see what was in it. It was full of great photos, really serious children earnestly showing their prize calves on calf day and that sort of thing. And I came across a man called Albert Blanche. He was a natural teller of tales who wrote several pieces for the centennial and I loved them all, especially the story he wrote about his mother. Albert's mother, Fanny Blanche, was born in 1859. She married in 1880 to a farm worker and seven years later they brought their family to a five-acre small holding outside Invercargill. It took them that long to save up the money to get themselves onto five acres of land. And Fan reared 10 of her 12 children in a tiny cottage on that land. Two of her children died, but the others thrived. Her husband then became ill. He was much older than she was. And Fan and her youngest son, five-year-old Albert, waged an unremitting battle for independence. As he followed his mother about and helped where he could, young Albert engraved it on his mind. He knew exactly how a small holding was run to best effect at the turn of the 19th century, 20th century. Fan milked six cows, she kept a pig, and she kept lots of free-range hens. Eggs went always to the store to be credited against purchases. No cash money was ever in her hands, wrote Albert. Some was in his, though, because Albert wrote a wonderful story of birds nesting. Birds were um, regarded as pests, and you collected birds' eggs. The ones on the really high um, trees, you had to bring down in your mouth because you couldn't take your box up there to get them. And um, Albert could get threepence for every 10 bird's eggs he could collect. And uh, they, it reminded me of tales my uncle used to tell me about his birds nesting in Ashburton, which was a similar South Island grain growing district, and how you faked birds' eggs to make swallows' eggs look a bit more like um, uh, um, swallows' eggs, sparrows' eggs. They, they, they could be made to look the same if you, um, because some were, were regarded as good and others were regarded as bad and you didn't get paid for some. Anyway, Albert did get some cash um, and of course it went straight to mother. 
Fan cooked on an open fire and she made bread in a camp oven. Sometimes she did a day's washing in an old bath outside under an open fire under a tree for a better off family in exchange for a sack of coal. When the district became more settled, however, Fan's life greatly improved and she built a new and very satisfying career as a midwife and a home nurse. And there's the picture you see. She's looking very proud and professional um, in a picture with five of the babies that she helped to deliver in her later career as a nurse. She retired to Invercargill eventually, where she died in 1939, aged 80. Now, not everyone has a fan blanche in their family. I haven't myself. I only have some rather reprobate grandfathers, but I wish I had. Mind you, you need an Albert to bring her to life. I was grateful to Albert for his biography of Blanche in that centennial history, and I put Blanche into the Book of New Zealand Women in 1991. Um, the other thing, the next thing you need to do after you've listened to the stories, after you've found a few characters, after you've got a few photos, is to fit your ancestors into the context of their time and place. I had an awful lot of fun doing that. You get a collecting bug, and I'm a terrible collector and hoarder. I have a whaler. I have two soldiers. I have a great-grandmother born to first comers in a New Zealand company settlement. And that's where the story about the good character and the Church of England vicar comes in. I remember standing in archives in the National Library and looking at the New Zealand Company Register and looking up their name. And there it all was, all those certificates of character, all signed off with initials by the same vicar who must have got a shilling or maybe sixpence. And there they were, all certified respectable because the New Zealand Company would take nothing else. Um, I, as well as those, I have a gold miner. I have an illiterate great-grandmother from the East End of London. I have another who died in the shelters at Green Lane of TB in the 1940s. I have a vaudeville actress from the very early 20th century. I have two soldiers who served in World War II. Nothing about that's very upmarket but they all have some kind of meaningful context. I would quite like to have a missionary. I'd quite like one relative, even by marriage, even a mere connection, as Jane Austen would put it, who signed the women's suffrage petition. But no luck, they all stayed home. But they did put on their best bonnets and went off to vote, though, because they're all on the rolls. Michael has a great uncle who was killed at Gallipoli. Now he's worth a couple of gold miners any day. And uh, I think it's quite important to know where your people come from. The ancestors from the 19th and 20th centuries are near enough in time for us to hear at least faint echoes of their personalities and particularly to get some sense of their skills. They often had physical skills that we don't have these days. And that's very important to my sense of family history. And that's what, what I'm writing down for my children to read. It's a long task, 
and it requires quite a lot of judgment and imagination. I'm immensely grateful to the relatives who've appeared out of the blue with years of work on the wider family tree, which they have so generously shared. And when I'm writing it up, I use the word maybe a lot. And you almost need to put it in bold because it is mere speculation. The family tree is solid. Those dates generally have something to them. Although you can't always be sure because your relatives giving information to people were um, quite scatty, quite often. And sometimes they had a lot to hide, like one of my great-grandfathers did. So um, you can't rely on those dates entirely. What I have too is a little unbalanced because some ancestors are far more hidden than others. I wish I had asked more questions when my grandparents were alive, but three of them died before I was five, so that wasn't much use. An aunt or three were invaluable, and I should have talked to them a lot more. I wish I were a novelist. I wish I had more skills in oral history like Megan does. I constantly have to change the draft when more information comes to light, and one of my maybes is not sensible. I had one grandmother who my cousin and I thought had married rather well and had moved off to from the depths of the inner city and my deplorable great-grandfather um, to marry a second time and go and live in St. Helier's. And we thought she'd definitely gone up in the world, but it was long before the waterfront, um, the wa waterfront road went in Tamaki Drive. And she hadn't gone up at all. She just moved to the boonies. And um, they had a son in Devonport. And it was quite clear she hadn't gone up in the world because twice I discovered in papers past, not one, but two um, separate advertisements asking for anyone who'd found a lady's black handbag on the boat and uh, containing a set of false teeth. So she hadn't gone up in the world. She had started to lose her, mislay her false teeth on ferry boats. <laughs> and uh, so instead, so I had to cross out one maybe and, and, and um, talk about something else. Anyhow, I wish I were a novelist and I constantly have to change my drafts. The 20th century is a little bit less shonky than the 19th century. Most Pākehā who came here in the 20th century were in one way or another refugees from Europe, especially from Britain. And in the 20th century, the mix widens. The same principles apply. Where did they come from? What baggage did they bring? It's very hard to imagine Peter Fraser's energetic and disciplined search for social justice and his love of poetry without taking into account his people's suffering during the Highland clearances and the stern Presbyterian faith in which he was brought up. Peter spent a long time reading the Bible, savoring the language of the hymns, listening to the cadences of correct English, working out the right thing to do and making sure he did it. And he didn't slack 
his staff came to idolize him, but the one thing they did dislike were his enormously long work hours because a 10 hour day was nothing to a prime minister who had been reared a strict Presbyterian in the Highlands. And uh, it was quite a long time for civil servants in Wellington. You might have to return to the places of origin to talk to relatives and friends. A friend of mine was obliged to make several quite long visits to Italy, the lucky thing. Diana Wichtel has written an engaging book about tracking her Polish origins, and I think that's well worth reading. But in these days of COVID, a visit to rural Nelson or a few days in Thames are not to be despised. There's a much more varied mix of migrants in the 20th century. We were nearly all British, Maori and British earlier. But for Maori too, the tribal backgrounds have been enriched or tangled by 20th century urbanization. And the same is true of Pacifica people who came in numbers from the 1960s on, more than half a century now, and their families have often become more mixed. A great aunt of mine once said, oh dear, there's Mabel clambering around the family tree again. Well, you do need to clamber a bit. You need several branches to work on if you want an interesting result. But too much information about names and dates without context may, I think, produce a thin result. Getting back further than the 19th century can easily be done now. But what is a forebear who may have been married to a child of Charles II? There were plenty of those to go around. Or a person who fought for King Harold at the Battle of Hastings to me. You can't know these people. There are wonderful family history sites these days that make it possible to climb a long way back up the tree, unimaginable distances. But in the search for more and more names and more and more dates, you very easily lose the context. And when you lose the context, you lose the people. My advice would be to work with what you have. It is more satisfying to work with people you can slightly recognize, whose names you know or who, which echo. And if you want something your children have a chance of recognizing, it needs to be done as soon as possible. And the best of luck on your journey. Thank you, Judith. That was um, very good. Um, I like the evocative little anecdotes all the way through. Um, very different way of telling, talking about family history, I found, and a bit of political and social history that were all woven into that. It was brilliant. Thank you. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Library's website, 